The scripture reading this morning is quite a few scriptures from Luke, and I will um, announce which one as I go. Our first one is Luke 9, 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9, 52 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, then, he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of the peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. What does it mean to be a Christian? In a sense, that's the question that we've been trying to answer over the last 10 weeks and one of my main goals, I guess, has been to disabuse us of this insidious American notion that being a Christian is little more than adding Jesus to your life, like just simply praying a prayer, adding him to your life, inviting him into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. That is not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to, to, to use the words here on the screen to be a follower of Jesus or an apprentice or disciple of Jesus, which is really what we're after. I hear nearly every week, or I see written online somewhere these words, you've probably heard them, Jesus loves you just the way you are. And I think at best, that is a confusing statement. I think it is imprecise. I think it is theologically sloppy. At worst, they can communicate that Jesus comes to your life and says, hey, your agenda, your choices that you've already made, your intuitions, I just want to affirm that. I love all the stuff you have going on, which I kind of picture as a building inspector coming and seeing that you have erected your house, like a physical house, on a jankety foundation, and stuff's about to fall down, and he goes through and looks at all these mistakes and just says, you know what, it looks great. I wouldn't change a thing. Just make sure you place your fire insurance policy. Knowing full well it's going to collapse, but saying at least you have this safety net. 
Jesus didn't come to rubber stamp your life, your pre-existing choices. He didn't come to say, as we saw in this text, add me to your life. Very often what Jesus is doing in order to call us to something qualitatively better than the life that we already have, his words sound more like negation than affirmation. And that's good because he's saying, this isn't good enough, or this isn't the way, and I love you enough to tell you this isn't the way, turn to a new way. Or in the words of our text that we read this morning, he says, hate your life, lose your life. And I realize that deserves some explanation, which we're going to do, but you can hear the difference between just this unqualified affirmation of, you're great, you're doing great, don't change a thing, and hate your life, lose your life, and find true life. So one big thing I'm going to look at with you this morning, as we're going through these 10 practices of Jesus, things that he personally practiced, but things that as a rabbi, his first disciples or apprentices would have seen, he's practicing these things, and he's teaching us to practice these things, and he's teaching us to teach others to practice these things. And this morning, we come to the practice of self-denial. Self-denial is the practice of saying no to your natural instincts and desires in order to receive more of Jesus. Learning to say no to just your instinct, which often is a base or a fleshly, or the Bible would use the term worldly instinct, in order to receive more of Jesus. So this morning, let's look at the path of self-denial and then the paradox and then the practice. I want to get practical with you of like three ways that you can actually see self-denial being worked out in your life. So when I talk about the path of self-denial, first of all, I want to just contrast because many of you who have heard this term self-denial or you think of someone and you're like, that's someone who's living a life of self-denial, you may picture like a monastic or an ascetic that's someone who has basically removed themselves from normal society. They've denied themselves physical or sensual pleasures in order to kind of achieve this higher spiritual plane that the rest of us are not living on. And I want to be clear right out of the gate here this morning that that monastic or ascetic life is actually not what Jesus means by self-denial. Monasticism or asceticism is based on actually a false or a dualistic heresy known as Gnosticism, which is the idea that your, your physical body, the tangible things that you can grasp and observe, there's something wrong with them. There's something lesser. They're inherently bad in some way. But the, the, the supernatural, the spiritual, the metaphysical part of you, that is good. And so this view is that Basically, if there is a Jesus, if he's God, if someone has come to deliver you, what they've come is to deliver your soul from your body, to deliver the good part of you from being chained, as it were, to the bad part of you. And I just want to be very clear, that's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus did not come to deliver your soul from your body. He came to redeem you soul and body. He as a resurrected being is soul and body. You as, a, as an eternal being will be soul and body. And so the idea is not how do we carve ourselves away from the physical, the sensual, so that we can just be spiritual, like our spiritual intuitions are good. But the idea is how can we see Jesus call us to a healthy form of self-denial? What does it look like? Okay, and I'll give you three things here. 
because there's a shift. And it's like in the text that were read for us this morning, you're going to see these three major shifts that signify this is what it looks like to walk the path of self-denial. Number one, self-denial means shifting our identity. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, lose yourself, he's not talking about the loss of your physical life. And let me just be very clear. Christianity is not like some suicidal cult like Heaven's Gate or the People's Temple. Okay, Let's be very clear about that. Jesus is not calling us to self-harm. Because the word that he uses here when he says, deny yourself or lose your life, is the word suke or psyche, we would say. So Jesus is not talking about your biology. He's talking about your psychology. I think if Jesus walked the earth today, what he would say is, you need to deny or to lose your identity, yourself. Okay, your identity is the idea of self or self-worth. And so I want us to think about this. If Jesus is saying lose your self-made identity, don't hang on to your self-made identity, then we need to pause and say, well, what is my self-made identity? What am I finding validation in? So a couple questions, and then I'll suggest some things that maybe I see in our culture as people finding their identity in. So another way to say this is how do you define yourself? How do you, or what are you seeking an identity in? What do you get your sense of validation from? What do you get your sense of worth? Like you're going through life and maybe you feel miserable and and you're physically sick and your emotions are not all healthy. And you're like, if I just had this, I would know that I'm doing okay. Like something in my life has meaning. It makes sense. It has purpose. Like I have achievement. I'm doing okay because of what? And for many in our culture, it's their vocation or their work. I know I'm doing okay because look at my job. And I've, I've, I've done years and years of education and climbed the corporate ladder and I've sacrificed to get to a certain level. Or maybe it's not your work itself, but it's your work ethic. And you're like, I, people look at me as like, that's a person who gets stuff done. And I find my identity in that. Probably many of you. With the rise of social media, more and more people find an identity in this kind of brand that they create. You ever do this? You're scrolling through social media, and you see someone's pretty well-manicured brand, and then you meet that person in real life, and they almost seem like two different people. You're like, who is this this persona But social media allows us to do that, where you can almost create this persona of of who you wish you were, and you can kind of test drive different brands of yourself, different personas of yourself. I would like to think of myself as the kind of person who would be this way, and you picture yourself that way on social media, and you get a sense of validation because other people are going like, 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 and you get that hit of endorphins, and you're like, I'm somebody. Just generally speaking, maybe you get your sense of identity from your accomplishments, your successes. Maybe you get it from your possessions or your wealth. I'm the kind of person who we have big investments or we have a certain kind of house or drive a certain kind of car, dress a certain way. We have these possessions. Some of you would find your identity in your performance of a particular role. Maybe that role is the role of a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a friend, or a leader, or an entrepreneur, or, or what are all these roles that you could carve out in society that certain people are giving you validation because you're like, 
man, you're such a great mom. I could never get my kids to all the things you get your kids to. How do you do it all? And you feel that hit of like, now I know my life has meaning because I'm doing well at this role. In our culture, many people get their sense of identity from just an expressive individualism. This idea of I'm creating the person that I want to be, and no one can tell me who I am. I'm being true to myself. I'm just like expressing whatever I feel, and you get that hit of excitement and support and validation when people are like, that's so cool, kind of who you've made yourself into. Many in our culture today get their sense of validation from like a tribe or almost like a cult-like politic or ideology that they associate with. Some of you probably get some of your sense of identity from your trauma or from victimhood. You know, like these are terrible things that happened to me. And instead of letting them go, they've become such a part of your validation that you carry them around like a backpack full of heavy weights. Everywhere you go, you're that victim, and that's a big part of who you are. And I just, what, however you define yourself, however you get your sense of identity apart from Jesus, I just want to point out a problem, and that is that whoever or whatever defines you controls you. If someone is defining you, and that's where you get your sense of validation. That's where you get your sense of self-worth. That thing has come to control you. That's why so many people are controlled by workaholism and climbing the corporate ladder or the social ladder or cannot get off social media because it's become addictive and it controls them and they need the next validation and the next validation and the next and the next. And they can't break free of that. And so I want you to hear the kindness of Jesus when he's coming into our lives and he's saying self-denial means shifting your identity, that seeking of a sense of validation and worth and meaning and purpose from whatever that thing is that's controlling you, shifting it to me. And saying, God, I am not what I do. I am not what I have. I am not defined solely by my desires. I'm defined by the one who has me. And you have me, and I've received your grace, and you tell me who I am, that I'm forgiven, that I'm adopted, that I'm a son or daughter of the king. And we start rehearsing to ourselves the identity that God tells us this is true. So I don't want you to just hear self-denial. It is a negation of something, but positively it's saying, I believe that I am who God says I am, and I'm seeking my identity. I'm seeking my purpose I'm seeking validation by hearing the one voice of God and hearing him say, well done. So self-denial means shifting our identity. Number two, this path, self-denial means shifting our allegiance. You notice a number of these stories that we read, these would-be disciples of Jesus. They're like, I see that you're special. I see that you have this power. I see that you speak the words of God, and I want to follow you, but, but, I, but first I got to do this other thing. With my family, I got to go back and bury my father, for example, or I got to go say goodbye to these people. And Jesus is like, no, like, let go of those former allegiances, those former loyalties, and come follow me. And I just want to point out, like, in a traditional honor-shame culture, which is where Jesus grew up, where when Jesus walked this earth, that was a traditional honor-shame culture. So a person's primary allegiances would be to, like, first of all, your parents— and then to a spouse, and then to your children, and then to your greater household. 
And all of these loyalties of like, are you viewed as a good person because you are loyal and faithful and you work hard and you contribute to that family. And Jesus completely upends that here by saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. That sounds very harsh. And we're like, whoa, Jesus, didn't, like, didn't you tell us like the greatest commandments are love God and love other people? And now you're saying hate your own family? So let me read a couple quotes that clarify this. One commentator said, hate should not be understood in terms of emotion or malice, but rather in its Hebraic sense, signifying the thing rejected in a choice between two important claims. To hate in this sense is to have a preferential affection. It is to love one thing more than the other, so that if it comes down to a choice, there is no doubt as to which affection we will choose. To hate is to give second place to, and if need be, to let go all else. So the question for you is, who or what are you most instinctively loyal to? And for some of you, you have a more traditional idea of culture and family. You would say, my, my loyalty really is to a parent who has certain expectations of me, or my loyalty is to my spouse, my loyalty is to my kids. And by the way, you could be controlled by a parent's opinion of you. And instead of following Jesus by denying yourself that loyalty, you're stuck to that loyalty. Or a, a child's choices, trying to shape their choices, trying to shape their reactions, trying to shape their uh, their life through their felt needs, you could be controlled by that. Some of you would be most loyal to your ethnicity, your people, your race. Some of you are most loyal to a political party or an ideology. And I see this every, every so many years when we have an election. It's like, do you, even, do you even know, can you speak articulately about this party platform? And so many people are just like, no, I just always vote a D or an R. And it doesn't really matter to you, and you don't really know. You just you have kind of a blind loyalty to something. And by the way, the same was true in Jesus' day. People were loyal, loyal to the, the party of the Pharisees just because they've always been loyal to the party of the Pharisees. Other people are loyal to the party of the Sadducees just because that's what they'd always done. Other people are loyal to the party of the Herodians or the Zealots or whatever just because that's what they did. And Jesus is saying, let go of those other loyalties. Let them be such a distant second place that they are not relationships that control you. Some of you are, you know, loyal to and controlled by a particular circle of friends. And maybe you identified them from a distance at first and then became their friends because you're like, they, they are cool. Like if I could be loved by them and accepted by them, like then I would know that I've kind of made it and my life makes sense. Or maybe they, they came after you and they're like, your thing is, is really cool and you're neat and you're, you know, the way you express yourself and your brand and the way you carry yourself. Like, we want to know you, but there's this loyalty now. And you crave the affirmation of that group. Reality is some of you are just loyal to, to nobody but yourself and you're just fiercely loyal to your own intuitions, your own opinions. And you're kind of an expert on everything. And your first allegiance is not to Jesus, it's to your impression of something. Again, the danger here, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, how can your primary loyalty be to someone or something else? Because you realize that the people 
the things that you're loyal to, that you have an allegiance to, you realize all of these things have demands on you. They have expectations. And if you're always sitting here like, well, I want to follow Jesus. And that's, that's what the men in this, this parable or this story, it might have been a real story, of just Jesus saying, come and follow me. And they're like, well, ugh, I'm torn because I want to follow you in a sense. I really do. But my family has expectations. And really in going back and meeting with the family and being like, hey, I want to follow this guy. He, he's a rabbi. And what you're opening yourself up to is like, I'm going to let my family talk me out of just going with Jesus and following Jesus. And that's one of the incredible things about the first disciples. You know, they're fishing. And it's like they're mending their nets and their father's right there. And Jesus is like, come follow me. And they're not like, well, hold on. Let me see what dad says about this. They just get up and follow him. That's that self-denial of I'm not going to be loyal to a previous allegiance or a previous relationship. And I think we need to be careful. We need to be honest. And you be wise to kind of to rank out this week. Who, who are some people? What are some parties or ideologies or thoughts that I have an existing allegiance to? And then be honest about this. What expectations do those things have of you? What demands do they make on your, your time, your money, the way you form habits, the way you're living your day-to-day life? Because you will always be torn between two positions if you don't just say, Jesus, I'm going to deny myself by shifting my loyalties, my allegiances from everything else to you and use the word hate in that biblical sense of they are so far dis. It's not, it's not that I've abandoned my family. It's that I now can love and serve my family in a way that does not tear me in opposite directions, but is able to actually love them and support them and encourage them in the ways that Jesus calls me to love and support and encourage them. So self-denial finally then means shifting our priorities. And this is an incredible thing about the story is just when people come to him and say, essentially, I see that you're the Messiah, so I'm going to follow you, but first let me do something else. See, if, you're, if your following of Jesus is conditioned on any if, I'll follow you if, or I'll follow you when, or I'll follow you so long as then do you know what your real Lord is? It's whatever comes after the if. It's whatever comes after the when. If there's any condition on following Jesus as Lord and Savior and King and all that he is, then what you're putting after the conjunction is the real thing that you're serving. And what Jesus is saying is like, in a sense, like literally let the dead bury their dead. Don't let that be your priority. Come and follow me. And family, I know there are immense personal and social pressures on putting Jesus in the passenger seat. You're the driver, or you're, you're in the back seat of the Uber, but you trust the Uber driver because he's taking you or she's taking you or that group of people are taking you where you think you want to go. And Jesus is like, I don't, I don't belong in the passenger seat. I'm not second place. I want to be your priority. So again, I would encourage you to make a list this week and just think, like, what are my existing priorities? If I'm honest with myself, another way to ask it is, what am I living for? What do I desire so strongly that it shapes the other desires? Is it like making money or having a good reputation 
or providing for my kids or, or having a lot of fun or living comfortably. Just, again, be honest with yourself. Let God search your heart and say, you know, my priorities right now are this, this, and this. And then, again, see how those priorities are shaping your day-to-day. For example, if you prioritize the praise, the validation, the affirmation of a certain peer group, do you know that you will be bending your behaviors to fit the things that you know in advance they are likely to affirm? You'll be a slave. They will be your Lord functionally. You won't be free to serve Jesus because you'll always be like, well, what, what, what do they have to see? What do I have to kind of project to them so that they see something to come back and say, you're really special, you're really great? way to go. Or if you prioritize financial stability, you know, saving up this nest egg as big as possible and as quickly as possible, well, that'll shape your day-to-day choices about generosity. Because you're like, well, that, that dips into my nest egg. If I'm giving something away, then I'm not leveraging it to buy more stuff or to have a bigger investment in the future. But prioritizing Jesus means giving him the first place and the foremost place in your affections. Giving him the first and foremost place in your schedule, in your budget, in your work, your vocation, your calling, in your relationships, in your day-to-day habits. Saying these things can be formed by you, Jesus, because I'm denying myself kind of the privilege and the opportunity just to prioritize someone or something else that's going to tear me into. Okay. And I want to just summarize that path and say you're, you're hopefully hearing that following Jesus is very different than just pray a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. It is a lifestyle. It is a, it's a path. That's why I say it's a path. It's a journey. It's, a, it's an everyday habit of saying, Lord, I don't want to just go find my identity, my meaning, my purpose, my validation apart from you. I don't want to set my priorities, my schedule, my, my agenda apart from you. I don't want to just have all these other allegiances and always feel like I'm doing seven different things and no one's really happy with me and I'm certainly not following you. So we need to learn this kind of self-denial. And by the way, it's it's radical, it's comprehensive, and it's sacrificial. So why would anybody do it? Um, And I want to give you two reasons. This is uh, the next point. Two reasons that all of you should pursue this path. And one I'll just say in a sentence. Because Jesus is Lord. And, and we should all be like, right, okay, Jesus is Lord. He's creator. He's king. So why am I doing this? Why am I denying my own identity, my own allegiances, my own priorities, and saying, Lord, you tell me who I am. Let me be loyal to you. I desire what you desire for me. Why would I do that? Because he's Lord. And that should be enough. But because it's not, Jesus himself taught us a second reason And this is the paradox of self-denial. The first thing I want you to notice, if you're in 9 still, Luke 9, that's where we started out this morning. So we jumped in at verse 23. But I want you to drift your eyes one verse earlier to 9.22. Have you ever noticed that immediately before Jesus says, you deny yourself, lose yourself, Jesus says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And I'm calling this the paradox of self-denial because the first paradox is, do you see in 9.22 that the one who calls you to lose your life lost his life for you? He's not calling you to something that he himself has not already done. So Jesus is saying, in essence, right before I call you to this radical, comprehensive self-denial, I'm telling you, I'm about to be rejected and despised by my peers. You know, as a Jewish rabbi, it probably would have felt really good if other more popular Jewish rabbis at the time were like, you got to get Jesus' opinion on this. Jesus is on fire. Go talk to him. And the reality is all these other powerful men in the religious caste of Israel hated Jesus. They're responsible for taking Jesus to trial and getting Jesus crucified. And what he's saying is, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. And in my dying and in my rising, in giving my life for you and overcoming death, I'm going to give you forgiveness and I'm going to give you freedom and I'm going to adopt you into my family and give you eternal life and all the blessings. So the one who says, deny yourself, set this pattern of I will deny myself and the self-denial of Jesus results in our salvation. And we are not saved apart from the fact that our king said, I give myself away for you. But there's a second paradox here because in verse 24, Jesus says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it or will save it. And the second paradox is that in losing yourself, you find your true self. And again, if that's confusing, let me, let me just kind of paraphrase. Jesus is saying, whoever clings to his or her self-made, constructed identity, you're going to lose it anyway. So if you're building all your validation, all your hope, all your meaning on your vocation, you're, you're going to lose that one day. If you're building it on the validation of your kids or a particular peer group, or look at all this money that I made for myself, and look at all these possessions that I have, you're going to lose it. You will lose the stuff that you built your identity on. It's, it'll just be gone. But he's saying, but if you voluntarily relinquish that self-made identity and follow me, you'll find yourself truly rescued and truly healed, is what that word saved means. See, the result of, of turning away from doing life on your own terms is not a more miserable life. When you turn away from your own agenda, your own schedule, your own priorities, your previous allegiances, all of that, and say, Jesus, I just want to follow you. You are first and foremost. Then you find out who you truly are. And you find, I'm no longer an easily manipulated person. Because people can't push me around with their expectations. I'm listening for the voice of Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm working and serving this audience of one as Tim Keller calls him, God, Jesus, is my decisive validator. And if I have his validation, if I have his yes and amen, then the whole world can be against me. And, and they won't be. But to overspeak, everyone could be against me. And I could hear his voice of validation and know I found what's truly life. I am a beloved son or daughter of God. So let's go to the practice here in closing. Let me just give you three simple things just to kind of workshop this a little bit. And I'm thinking, like, how would the first disciples have seen Jesus practice this? What are they hearing in his words, and what do they instruct us? So first of all, form a habit of cross-bearing. 
That's the first thing you do. You notice in a couple of these texts, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Now, this means almost nothing in our culture anymore. One, because we don't have crosses except for jewelry, necklaces, pendants, all that. And two, because Christians say some really weird things sometimes. One person said, I'm going to be late to work because I left the house late. And I guess being late for this meeting is my cross to bear. Or an attractive girl in college actually said, all these guys are always asking me out, and that's my cross to bear for being so beautiful. And what we do is we take cross to bear as like any kind of suffering, any kind of trial, any kind of pain or difficulty. We're like, that's my cross to bear. And that's not how Jesus is using this term. To be very clear, a cross was an implement of putting someone to death. Okay, so when Jesus says, take up your cross daily, he's saying, there is something in your life, every one of you, that you're going to have to put to death every single day. And if you don't, it's going to rule you, and it's going to ruin you. But if you put it to death every single day, you will find yourself truly alive. And it's things like this. Your cross is your agenda It is your priorities determined apart from God. It is your selfish ambition. It's your desires. It's it's getting your way. And Jesus says, you're going to have to take that up every single day and die to it. So let's practice this. I want you to ask yourself, what do I want most in life? I just want Jesus to have the first place. And that's great if that's you right now in this moment. But you may be like, I don't know. I I, I want popularity. I I just want life to not be hard. You know, I don't want to be super wealthy with, like, the most possessions, but I just, I just want what? What do you want most in life? What is the most pressing thing in my life that I feel I need to do, first and foremost? What would make life feel like a success if I had it or I accomplished it? Or what gives me the biggest dose of self-worth? So those are the kinds of questions that as you answer them, the idea of Jesus, take up your cross daily to follow me, is the idea is all those things you just filled in, this is what I truly want most in life. This is my agenda. This is what would make me feel like I was successful. This person's validation, if everyone was against me and this person said, I see you, you're incredible, way to go, that would mean everything. And Jesus is like, whatever that package of stuff is, every single day, Put it on the altar, so to speak. Don't let it rule you, but put it to death. Don't be controlled by it. Your hopes, your plans, your ambitions, surrender to the hands and the heart of Jesus. That's what it means to form a habit of cross-bearing. Secondly, form the habit of cost-counting. And Jesus in chapter 14 tells two short parables here to make this point. He says, like, who sets out to build a large building without first sitting down and calculating the cost? Because it's embarrassing when in, like, the north side of the springs, remember that hotel that was half built for a decade? And it just sat there and sat there and sat there because the developer ran out of money halfway through building a giant hotel? It's stupid. It's worthless. It's a waste. But he also says, who goes into battle against another army and is like attacking with their force and has not first calculated what cost is it going to involve 
my life, my side, my nation, my people, my whatever, in order to win and, and, and to see a victory through. Well, what's he doing with this cost-counting stuff? Well, he's saying, like, in the same way that you would not do these other big things without counting the cost, he says, do you know what it's going to cost to follow me? And it sounds a rhetorical question, of like, well, it'll cost something. Well, Jesus answers his own question, 1433. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. His point is, it's not going to cost you something to follow me. It's going to cost you everything to follow me. And one commentator said, Jesus is not, of course, discouraging discipleship. He is warning against an ill-considered, faint-hearted attachment in order that those who follow him may know the real thing. And this is probably not true of everyone, but I think a number of people that I know that have, like, quote-unquote, deconstructed over the last number of years are not deconstructing from a rich, vibrant, deep, passionate walk with Jesus as a follower of Jesus. They're, they're deconstructing from, I had my life, I put the Jesus sticker on it, and it didn't really go well for me. And Jesus is saying, let me disabuse you of the notion that that was Christianity or that was following me to begin with. Because I'm not just walking through your house, seeing all the problems and saying, hey, it looks great, get your fire insurance. He says, I'm walking through your house and just saying, ah, I hate to say this, guys, but the whole thing is going to need to come down. In fact, you're building on the wrong foundation. You know, when Marty and I bought an older house last year and we're refinishing it, there was as we did this renovation and took everything down to the studs and beyond, we realized there were, there were a number of different renovations that had taken place in this house previously over 40-some years that was not explicitly obvious on the surface when we bought this house. One of those was the addition of kind of a sunroom off the back of the house. And we were like, great, there's already a foundation wall here. And the building inspector comes through and says, well, this, this foundation is illegal what do you mean it's illegal? They, they had a house on it for however many years. Well, it's illegal. Like that, that foundation actually does not go down below the frost line, which you should know in a place like Colorado, you, you can't build like that. It's not safe to build like that. So we had this much larger expense and time delay of tearing out that foundation, digging much deeper and putting in a whole new foundation. My point in that is Jesus is coming into our lives like that, and he's not like, eh, that's good enough. Just, just build on that. That's fine. Just add me to that. He's like, you're building your life on the wrong foundation, and I don't want your life to crumble. It's because I love you that I want you to build on a foundation that will never crumble. You know, many people, like in the parable of the soils and the sower, start out following Jesus really well, and then life continues to be hard, and they're the cares of this world, and other stuff just comes in and chokes it out, and they're like, I'm out of here. And Jesus is doing this really thoughtful thing up front that instead of you getting partway in and being like, this is not what I signed up for, he's like, let me tell you what you're signing up for. Let me, let me help you get in the habit of counting the cost. Jesus, it will cost me everything to follow you every day of my life, and that is a cost I'm willing to pay in order to actually get everything in return. And then let me give you one final very practical way to practice this. That is, not only form the habit of 
cross-bearing and cost-counting, but form the habit of fasting. Practicing the way out of Bridgetown, they would say that fasting is one of their eight or whatever practices. Uh, We put it in a bigger category of self-denial because fasting is just one of many practical ways that you can experience or habituate a self-denial. Let me define fasting for you. Fasting is the voluntary denial of a physical appetite in order to focus on and feed a spiritual appetite. So the, the most common form of fasting that you all would be aware of is literally fasting from food. Do you know, like professional athletes and other people, they will, at certain periods of time, they will deliberately fast from food in order to feed something else. And maybe what they're feeding is like a fat-burning cycle before they go to a show or something. But they're like denying myself a physical appetite here to accomplish a greater goal is worth it. Well, when we fast from food or sex or other good things, we don't just go on and on. I mean, Paul literally talks about this. He's like, if you're married, don't just go on and on and be like, well, sorry, honey, I'm just fasting permanently from sex. He's like, can't do that. But when there's a spiritual point and a spiritual goal of I want to deny myself a physical appetite so that I'm focused on God and a spiritual need that I need to be met. Because you know, very often we do not see and experience this spiritual realm until we do something physical to our body. And I've seen this in my own life where like at the end of the day, and it's been like 24 hours and you, you hear those noises going on and you're like, I am hungry. And you're like, mm, am I ever, if someone took away my Bible, Like, am I ever this hungry for the word? Because, you know, when Jesus is fasting, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, in the same way that we're dependent on food to satisfy a physical hunger and to enable us to grow and to be healthy, we're dependent on God and his sustenance spiritually and holistically. The early church did this, where they often fasted together Because they were praying about an important decision. And what they're saying together is, God, this decision is so important. We are not up to the task of deciding for ourselves what happens here. We're we're saying no to a physical appetite to turn all of our attention to you. This self-denial is not just some self-flagellation, some ascetic thing just to say the the body's not bad. And that hunger is reminding me, I actually hunger and thirst for you, God. And I want to just come full circle because we started this year way back in January with two sermons on seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek the rule and reign of God in your life and seek his righteousness, his rightness, his holiness, his character. Seek justice and mercy on behalf of other people. Seek first priority. And I just want to remind you of that, that we kind of set for the year that that doing these things is a priority of our lives and a priority of our church to say no to my own kingdom, to say no to my own definitions of right and wrong and my feelings that often trump what the Bible says. So let's practice this self-denial, not as a way of feeling better about ourselves, not as a way of feeling worse, but as a way of inviting God to come do a far greater work. Jesus, we say no to the innate, natural, worldly, fleshly things that pop into our heads 
so that we can experience more of you. Closing with the words of C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, he says, Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for Jesus. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in.